congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a young person, a child, and you're in a house and your house is on fire, what do you do? Can't get out of the door because there's fire, there's fire by the window, you have no escape. What do you do? Well, hopefully you have a chance of calling the fire brigade because if the fire brigade, if you call them, they will come and they will help you. And what you want to see is this strong fireman come running through the flames with a, a fireproof blanket and wrap you in that blanket and grab you and hold you in his arms and run through the danger and bring you into safety. That's what you want to see when you're stuck in a house fire and have no way of dealing with it yourself. Now, if we imagine the fire to be a picture of sin, it's astonishing how sinners deal with the fire of sin. There are many who pretended away. They're sitting in a house which is burning. They're sitting at the breakfast table and one of the beams crashes onto the table while they're eating. It's a flame. And they say, well, that's, that's just natural. That's a normal part of life. They just roll with it. Everything's fine. They just pretend the fire away. Others try to deal with it with their own resources, and they go running around the house with a watering can trying to put it out. But you can't put out a house fire with a watering can. And there are others who know the answer. They know the answer. A big house fire needs the fire brigade. Only the fire brigade can handle this. We can do nothing of ourselves. And so they sit there at the table with a house burning around them, and they write down on a piece of paper all the addresses of all the fire stations in the city, and they calculate how many trucks are available and how many gallons of water can be brought to bear on this fire. They memorize the names of the fire commanders and the teams. They memorize the standard operating procedures, the firefighting manual. They know everything about firefighting. The house is burning down around them. Now, all of these categories end up dead. The only people who don't end up dead in this picture are those who call for help. You know, even if they don't know all the details about how the fire brigade works, they know they need the fire brigade, and they call for help, and they don't just want to know about the fire services. They want to know them personally. They want to see them right there in their home, the ones that call, the ones that get helped, are saved. And there's a similar dynamic in the way that people deal with sin and with, with God. A lot of people deny sin. A lot of people try to deal with sin their own way and their own resources, their own goodness, make the world a better place. There are many who even know all the truth about the danger of sin, the destructive power of sin, how the wages of sin is death, how we cannot save ourselves, and they know theology back to front and upside down, but they do not know God. And they do call upon him, and he does not live in their hearts. And that kind of useless faith is the faith of the demon the Bible says the demons believe and they shudder. They know everything, but it doesn't save them. And so true faith is not just knowing about God, not just knowing about the problem of sin, 
But true faith is knowing God. It is believing what God says. That when God comes to us in the word, he is who he says he is. He has done what he says he has done. When he tells us he has done things, he is doing things, and he will do things, we know that, we trust it, we believe it, and we stake our lives on it, and we live accordingly. So true faith is not just knowing about, but true faith is knowing him. And because we know him, and because we know us and our situation, we cannot but call out to him. And we plead with him, God, be who you are. Do what you have promised, because I need you. I'm lost without you. And the glorious experience of faith is that when we call out to God, God comes to us. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So we're starting the creed today. We're at the beginning of the creed, the first articles. The first article there of, uh, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The creed deals not only with what we know and believe, but the creed deals very much with who we know and believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. This is the true God. This is the God who reveals himself in the universe he created and in the word that he gives to us. This is not the small, cramped God of modern moral therapeutic deism, the God who is there to help us when we've got problems. The God who is there like the genie in Aladdin's lamp when we've got a problem, when life doesn't feel good. We rub the lamp, God appears as what we like. See, God, can you, can you fix this problem? That is the God of many who call themselves Christians today. That is not the God of the Scripture. That is a cramped and small and wrong idea of who God is. It's a denial of the faith, and it is a sin against the first commandment to create such a God in your mind or in your life. He's not the God of moral therapeutic deism, nor is he the God of evolution, theistic or otherwise. The God of evolution of any type, including the type that a lot of Christians would be pushing on us, is a God who created the world not good. He created the world full of cancer and catastrophes and disease and sickness and death. And Adam and Eve, their mom and their dad, even though they weren't technically human, they died. That God is not the God of the scripture. Because he's a God who creates evil. Nor is God the God of open theism. That is the God of the liberal scholars of Christianity today. The modern pseudo-Christians who believe in a God who is always rolling with whatever happens on the earth. He's, he's powerless to change things. He's just looking there above. He's looking down and he's saying, oh boy, why don't you guys just get along? And he grieves and he suffers along with the world. He's powerless to change things. He, he just wishes that we could do better. But against all of those false gods and false understandings of God, we confess the true God. God as he has revealed himself to us in his word. 
God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, the one who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth and said, good, 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 very good. The God who, when we gaze upon the skies, we see his glory being declared by the heavens and the vast expanse above proclaiming his handiwork, Psalm 19. The God of whom Psalm 8 speaks, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The God of whom Colossians 1.16 says, it is through him that all things were brought into being in heaven and on earth, both seen and unseen, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, everything was created through him and for his purpose. The God spoken of in Ephesians 1.11, in his sovereign will, he works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. The God Declared in Isaiah 46.10, as the Almighty, he declares, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times. What is still to come, I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. The God confessed in Colossians 1.17, he stands before all things, and it is in his mighty power that all things hold together. The God confessed in Psalm 24, indeed the earth and its fullness belong to the Lord, encompassing the world and all its inhabitants. The God glorified in Isaiah 44, verse 6, God himself proclaims, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him announce it. The God who is glorified in Romans eleven thirty six, truly from him, through him, and to him are all things directed to him be the glory forever. Amen. The God who tells us that not a hair can fall from our head without his will. The God who knows the number of our tossings and turnings in the dark agony of the night. The God who counts the tears which fall from our eyes. He knows our deepest joys and hopes and desires and fears. Before a word is on our lips, he knows it all together. He is almighty God, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present. And he is faithful Father, all-loving, all-gracious, always-caring always providing. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the whole story of the universe, and he has purposed it, and his purpose will stand, and his decrees stand fast, and his word goes out and goes forth and accomplishes that which he has ordained. If the universe, if the history of the universe was a book, God is the author, and every detail of history is determined and written by him. The rain, the fruitful years, the food and drink, the health and the riches, but also the drought, the barren years, the sickness and the poverty. None of that comes by chance. It all comes from his fatherly hand. Now, when we know God, when we believe in God and trust him and love him, then we know who he is. He is the one who created all things in Christ. He holds all things together in Christ. He gives all things in Christ. He holds unto us in the eternal love that he has for us in Christ. He rules the universe in and through the Christ. And he is guiding us through this world towards an eternity of joy with Christ. And when we know him, 
when we really know him, that changes everything. It changes the way we look at the world. It changes the way we look at our life. It changes the way we look at the future and the past. I am not my own. I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And God is my Father for Christ's sake. He's not just some massively exalted and powerful being that has no connection whatsoever with me, but he is exalted and powerful God who loves me as a father because of Jesus. And because of that truth, I can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. Now, the, the thankful in prosperity bit is pretty easy for us because when things are going very well, we're happy. It feels good when we've got a full stomach and we've got a full heart and and, and we got lots to thank God for. And the, the weather is beautiful. And we sit down together with our friends and family and we enjoy feasting and thanksgiving. And we, we rejoice in that. That's not usually too hard to do. But what about the patience and adversity there? You see that on page 526, question answer 28. The patient in adversity, what does that mean? Well, that means acknowledging that also the pain, the tribulation, the affliction, the adversity comes not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. See, patience in adversity is not just kind of sitting there and waiting for the pain to go away, but it's an active patience. It's a believing patience. It's a worshiping patience because we see the painful things. We see the tribulation. We see the adversity. And we say, this is from God. This is from my Father's hand. And if it is from my Father's hand, even though it hurts, it's good. It's for his glory and for my eternal good. That's why the Bible says what the Bible says. If you have your Bible handy, James chapter 1. And you remember what James says in that first chapter about suffering. James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Trials are adversities, tribulations, painful things. What is God telling us? How does this make sense? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, all types of trials. Why? Well, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect to complete, lacking in nothing. Well, what does the scripture say? God is hammering away at you to prepare you for glory. And every hammer blow of providence with the chisel of affliction is preparing the eternal you. It is forming you for eternal glory. And under those ministrations of God, we are called to be patient. It's not a patient grumpiness. It is a patient joy. And it is a joyful patience because God is at work. Now, we often see pain and affliction as an intruder. You know, we're, we watched with the SALT group the other night, American Gospel, the first half, which deals with the health and wealth gospel. And the health and wealth gospel says that God is there to make you happy and, and healthy and, and, and 
You're going to have no problems if you just follow Jesus and give a lot of money to the health and wealth preacher. And, and so they very much tell people that pain and affliction are not parts of the real Christian life. And so often we take over this ungodly and unbiblical thinking. We see pain and affliction. We don't like it because it doesn't feel good. And, and we say this can't be part of God's plan. This can't be from him. And you know, in one way we're right. In the great scheme of things, if you look at the entire history of the cosmos, pain, affliction, death, disease, they do not belong. They are intruders in that sense. But if you look in the scope of life under the sun in this fallen world, God tells us clearly that pain and affliction is part of his work for our eternal salvation. When it comes to God working for our eternal salvation, pain and affliction is not a bug, but it is a feature. You know, too many people have gone wrong when they've tried to embrace a Christianity without the cross. A Christianity without suffering. That's like a swimming pool with no water. It doesn't make sense. What does Jesus say? If anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If anyone knew pain and affliction and adversity and suffering, it was Jesus. Jesus says, you want to be my disciple? Take up your instrument of torture. That's what a cross is. And follow me, which is the path that I walked. It's the path of suffering, humiliation, and death to get to glory. That's the message of the gospel. And I'm going to bring to you now just a few of the many scriptures which remind us of the place of affliction and suffering in the Christian life. Psalm 119.71, it was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 1 Peter 1 verse 6, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Hebrews 12.11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. 2 Corinthians 12.9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, Paul's not talking about some other brand of Christianity, some category of Christianity for the super, super top level one percenters in the church. He's telling us what the gospel is. For Christ's sake, 
The believer delights in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. Why? Well, when I am weak, then I am strong. Remember our father Jacob and his dislocated hip. Psalm 34, 19, we sang it this morning. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. 1 Peter 4, 12, dear friends, do not be afraid. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Hey, Christian, you're suffering. Don't be surprised, that's normal. And you're hurting now so that when Jesus appears, he gets all the more glory. Romans 5.3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. You see what the apostle is saying here, Romans 5.3? He doesn't say we also complain in our sufferings. We shake our fist at heaven in our sufferings. We get angry in our sufferings. He doesn't say that. We glory. We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. God is doing something. God is at work. James 1.12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. How far, brothers and sisters, have we not come from the early church where brothers and sisters would elbow each other out of the way to be the one that got caught, that got arrested by the Roman soldiers to be martyred because it was considered a crown of glory to die for Jesus. And we live in a, a world, a society which is so comfortable that when the pew is a little less comfortable than we would want, we consider that great affliction and we want things changed pronto. Well, why does God tell us that we are to glory in our suffering? How does that make sense? Why is the patience in adversity, the patience of accepting and rejoicing and glorying? You, you remember what we read and what we sang in Psalm 66. Did you notice that? There was a lot of pain there on the way to that place of abundance. There was testing and trying and being brought into the net and having a crushing burden on our backs. People were riding over our heads. That looks like chariots riding over people. That hurts. We went through fire and through water. Well, how did the believer respond to all of this? Look at verse 17 in Psalm 66. I cried to him with my mouth. How did he cry? How did he cry? Hey, God, what's the problem here? Why are we suffering all this stuff? He didn't say that. Look at, look at Psalm 70, 66, verse 17. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. I worshiped God, he says, in my affliction. I worshiped him. I rejoiced in him. I glorified in him. Why? Because God is God, and God is to be worshipped. No matter what's happening to me, no matter how hard things are, God remains God, and God is to be worshipped. That's the fact. And because we know that God is doing something, because the road through suffering leads to glory. We had a hand dug well at our property in Brazil, which was 150 feet deep. 
dug by hand. I would not want to be the person at the bottom of that thing. 150 feet. I think it's around 50 meters. And imagine, imagine falling down, the rope breaking, and you fall down to the bottom. And you're sitting there in the dark. And you can't get out. Your leg's broken. And you need help. You can't save yourself. And then imagine somebody rappelling down to attach ropes to you and then going back up and then pulling you up that 150 feet. And as you are pulled up, every time they, they reef on that rope, you're, you're, there's a jolt of pain through that broken leg and, and, you, and you swing back and forth and you hit against the sides of the well and, and that hurts. And then there are parts where, the, where the, the digging is a little narrower and you scrape and you get bumps and you get bruises and you're bleeding, and it's painful. And it would actually be less painful if you were just sitting there on the bottom, wouldn't it, in the dark? It would be less painful if they didn't try to save you. But why do you put up with all the pain? Because every jolt of pain, every bruise, every bleed means that you're so many feet closer to life. You're closer to being pulled out of that pit and to be restored to your loved ones, to your family, and, and to the sunshine and to the fresh air. And so every pain, every jolt, every bruise, every scrape, it tells you that salvation is closer. And that's, that's how the scriptures describe the pains and tribulations of the Christian life. These are the birth pangs of a new world. And every time we feel them, we know that the time is about to be up for them. They're going to come to an end and something better is going to take their place. And so I want to end just drawing your attention to four things to meditate on as you suffer. Because we all do in different ways. What are things that we can do as we're sitting there patient in adversity? Well, first of all, we can meditate on the sovereignty of God. This comes from my Father's hand. Psalm 39, verse 9. It is you who have done this, says the psalmist. Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form the light and I create darkness. I bring prosperity and I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. God is sovereign. All the pleasant things and all the painful things come from him. And God prevails. God reigns. God writes the story of the world. We don't. And God writes the story of my life. I don't. And that's a good place to be. We ended the service this morning, Psalm 131, just acknowledging, Lord, trying to figure out how to run the universes beyond my pay grade. I just rest in your everlasting arms like a little child. And I know that you carry me and care for me. So in our adversity, we're patiently meditating on the sovereignty of God. Secondly, we meditate on the, the, the love of God as he refines us and purifies us from sin. Zechariah 13 verse 9, This thought I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. How many times throughout the, the scriptures do we not see God doing that? Where his people are worldly. And they start drifting away. And 
they start to forget the worship of God. And God sends enemies and he sends affliction. And they turn back to him and say, oh Lord, we need you. We can't live without you. That's what God does. He refines us with adversity. He burns away the guck of sin. You know, affliction often shows us the areas that we need to grow, the sins that we need to own and confess and ask God to deliver us from. God is sovereign. God refines. And in the third place, as we meditate in patience in our adversity, we meditate on the fact that God is our only hope. 2 Corinthians 1.9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The apostle says, look, we were suffering and we couldn't handle it. God gave us more than we could handle. He tested us beyond our limits. We felt like we were going to die. And if there's one thing that human beings can't handle or resolve or change, it's death. But God can. God raises the dead. He's the only one that can do that. And so Paul says, you know, we were suffering more than we could handle. God gave us more than we could handle. You know why? So that we would figure out, this is the apostle talking, so that we would figure out that we can't rely on our attempts to make life better. We need God. Spurgeon, I think, said it this way. I kiss the wave that throws me against the rock. The wave is the pain. The wave is the affliction. The wave is the horrible things that are happening that we don't like, but they drive us to the Lord Jesus. We say, God, I need you. You talk to people who are suffering. You say, are you praying more? Oh, yes, we're praying more. Do you feel closer to God? Oh, yes, we feel closer to God. We're seeking the Lord. We need him in our grief, in our pain, in our anguish. Brother and sister, whatever drives you closer to Jesus is a friend, no matter how much it hurts. So as we meditate on a, in our affliction, as we're patiently meditating, we, we see God as sovereign, God refines, God is our only hope, and finally God is preparing us for glory. Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, when the apostle writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, he's not saying that the affliction is light. It's not. It's painful. It's hard. It's heavy. But in comparison with what it's producing, with what it's preparing, it is light and it is momentary because the weight of glory is indescribable. And you think about that. There's so many times in life when we're like that person stuck in the well and, and yes, We're being smacked up against the sides and scraped and bruised and bleeding and the pain is jolting, but but that's nothing compared to being out there in the the fresh air again and getting medical help and, and being restored and getting back to living life. There's no comparison. It's temporary and it's leading to something far better. And that's for us, and that's for the world, brothers and sisters. Romans 8, 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We are in the midst of cosmic contractions. The world is passing away. Everything that we think is so important is going to burn up, and every day we're closer to that great burn when the world will be flooded not with water but with fire. The creation is groaning for that day. The creation can't wait. 
for Jesus to cleanse the universe, to cleanse the planet, so that only the good and the beautiful and the perfect and the holy and the true remains. Everything that hurts, everything that stands against God and who God is will be gone. And then the scripture says, the creation's groaning, but we groan too. We're groaning too. That's what believers do. We groan right along with the world, with the creation, as we wait for new heavens and new earth and for a new body, a body that doesn't break down because of age, a body that doesn't suffer ongoing pain, a body that doesn't have disease and cancer, a body and a mind that lives in perfection and perfect joy. That's where things are going. And all the pains of this life are the birth pangs of that new world. Now, we know the one who wrote this story. We know the author. He is our faithful father, and he is almighty God. And we know the last chapter, how it begins, that sin and death are banished, that tears are wiped away from our eyes. We know that the last chapter begins with us being ushered into the everlasting sunshine of God's love as we feast and rejoice with Jesus Christ and all the family of the saints, that, that those saints that are so great in number that we can't even count them, that glorious, eternal, thanksgiving feast of unspeakable joy and fellowship and laughter, rejoicing. That's just the beginning. Because the last chapter never ends. It just gets better and better and deeper and deeper. And so this weekend is Thanksgiving weekend, and, and perhaps some of us have thought to ourselves, well, what is there that I can give thanks for? Because there's a lot of stuff in my life that hurts right now. A lot of things that are not going good. You know, Thanksgiving is not just for the people who are experiencing a lot of very pleasant things in their life. Thanksgiving is for all the children of God. Yes, we give thanks for the joys, and, and no matter how much things are hurting, there are joys, there are comforts, food and drink and family, friendship, the contentment of full stomachs and full hearts, laughter and joy. But we even give thanks as we patiently endure adversity. Because God is good, because God is sovereign, because God refines, because God is our only hope, because God is preparing us for glory, because God is God, because God is almighty, because God is our faithful father for Jesus' sake, because God has written the story of the world, the pleasant parts and the painful parts, and he's taken them and woven them together until they form an intricate and beautiful woven thread which leads us to glory. Thanks be to God. Amen.